it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. Welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today we have episode 202. Tonight we are going to return to answering some great listener questions we got recently. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and jump in and read the first question. So I have, good morning. If you don't usually answer questions like these, sorry for taking up your time. I'll get to the point. A mutual friend of mine recommended to take a look at JUSHF. The stock meets zero of your prerequisites, dividends, cash flow positive, market cap, etc. But I have a question about their financial statements located on CDAR. Operating income for 2020 was negative 9232, but a fair value change in derivatives of negative 173,707 drops net income to negative 192,233. Further derivative liabilities account for over half their total liabilities. I cannot find any information about these derivatives and why they are such a large part of the business. Professor Google and their annual report have not yielded much. Is there somewhere else you recommend looking or could you explain why companies generally use derivatives? The whole thing confuses me. Thank you so much, Liam. Andrew, what are your thoughts on Liam's really good question? I'm curious to know too, because I'm not super up on derivatives myself. Yeah, it's one of those where derivatives are are basically like options so if if you want to go back and listen to the episode we just did with cameron that could be a good primer into talking about different sorts of options in his case he was talking about puts but you have calls and you have puts so options are derivatives but a derivative doesn't always have to be an option but we saw with the great financial crisis what can happen with derivatives really messy and we saw it more recently with the the art 
Arche, if I knew how to pronounce Artegos. <laughs> I think that's it. Yeah. I pro- I'm just probably still butchering it, but the Artegos thing, you had a lot of derivatives exposure. And so it's just one of these weird things. And I don't know why that's the case. And it's one of those mysteries right now with the finance world, but derivatives basically will give you the option and it's a contract. So you're able to be positive on the security or negative on security. You can go, you, you can like leverage up and, and basically be acting like you have a lot of positions in a stock, but not have to pay too much. So it's a form of leverage. So you'll have companies use it, what Cameron was talking about a couple of weeks ago, as a hedge. So they will use it as a hedge. And so they'll use derivatives to hedge against interest rates. They'll use derivatives to hedge against currency risk. So if you're a, a company who's selling stuff to Southeast Asia and also to Europe, you're not necessarily wanting, if your core competence is we make really great components or something, or we make a really great electronics product, you don't necessarily want to play this currency trading game, because that's not in your core confidence, but it does make an effect on what your profits are going to be. And so to try to mitigate that exposure and make your financial results follow your, your true operations and not have to do so much with currencies, they'll use derivatives. Derivatives are tough because if you really search into a company's financial report, they should have some disclosure on it, but there's not, as far as I'm concerned, and what I'm familiar with, there's not like, it's not as detailed as like a financial statement would be like a balance sheet or an income statement. And it's just not. And we also talked to Jeff from Visual Capitalist and he had a really cool infographic where he talked about the world's different wealth. And I wrote a blog post on it too, where I, I linked to his infographic, but it was amazing because you have wealth in stocks, bonds, real estate. And then there was this huge bubble that's derivatives. And so you have the actual financial value of the derivatives and then how much basically the bigger bubble of what the derivatives could control. So again, like to use an example, let's say I have have a derivative to to go along a stock. So maybe I would pay, I don't know, $100. And if the stock goes up 10%, I go up 100% or 200% instead of just that 10% because I'm using derivatives to, to maximize the leverage. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have the value that I paid for the derivative, which was like a hundred bucks. And then really what the outcome could be, which is multiples more of that. That's like a, no- a notional value is, is one of the ways that they use to describe this difference between how much you pay for the derivative and how much like exposure you have to it. And so a lot of these financial instruments have a lot of not notional value. And so there's a big part of the market and we don't really know to what extent it is because it's so under the table, but a big part of it is possibly controlled by derivatives. And again, we saw with the Artegos thing where some derivatives went upside down and the stock crashed, what, 25, 30, 40%, something crazy. Who knows how much of the current market is subject to that kind of a thing. And so when to circle all the way back to this question about this company, which I'm assuming is in Canada because this Sidar thing is like Edgar in the US, just the fact that they already lost that much. And that's why if operating income is like 9 million or 9 billion, whatever the scale is on this, and they're losing 173 million, 173 billion from derivatives, that's a huge proportion compared to what their operating income was. So it, it just raises a lot of red flags to me. And if, if you're having trouble finding 
disclosures about it? Is it because they don't want you to know? I don't know if that's the answer or not, but when it comes to finding good investments and being able to stick with them for the long term, if you're really struggling to to find reasons to be comfortable for a stock, then you know there's thousands of stocks out there to choose from. You don't necessarily have to go in places where you're uncomfortable. I think it's good to try to dig around and uncover those rocks, but to me, it just it throws up all sorts of red flags because, like you say, you're having trouble figuring out what their derivative exposure is. And they've already shown that they're not good at managing it by losing so much. So I don't care what the other financials say. I, I would not feel comfortable putting your money in something like that. Would it be fair to say that the derivatives are something that you would find in companies that deal more internationally? Would that be a fair question? Yeah, I think international is is part of it. The biggest exposures that I've seen so far how it tend to be with the financials and, and you'll see it with the banks too. And so they'll call it like this off balance sheet, not, it's not like off balance sheet exposure, but there's a, there, it might be off balance sheet exposure. There's a certain, you have obligations and potential commitments. Are you familiar with that term? I think it's obligations and, and potential and commitments or commitments. Potential, yeah. Commitments. Yeah. Obligation. Yeah. Yeah, maybe you can explain the obligations and commitments first, because I think the derivatives fall into commitment, but not obligation. Well, I think obligations and commitments basically refer to outside commitments that the company may have in different contracts, whether it's derivatives or whether it's operating leases or anything of that nature. I I think it's just, I think it's my understanding is it's money that the company owes to somebody outside of the business for other commitments that pertain to either them making money or operating in a certain way that they can make money, whether it's something like a lease or whether it's a derivative. That's my understanding. Yeah. And from what I saw, because I remember reading this with one of the companies I was looking at, the the difference between obligation and commitment is a commitment is something you could possibly have to pay, but a lot of times you probably don't have to, whereas obligations like this is going to be due. And so you're going to have to pay it regardless. And yeah. so that's where I've seen the the whole derivative thing show up, but it is not something that's super common. And then nobody can fault you for not wanting to invest in these super exotic derivatives, especially when this kind of stuff blew up AIG and and some of the other big companies. Yeah, exactly. I, I know that this is not something that I honestly am super familiar with, mostly because the companies that I have worked with and looked at, it generally tends to be a very minor part of their business, whether it's they're using it to offset any sort of currency fluctuations if they deal with other countries selling their products or buying products or supplies or raw materials from other countries, they may use derivatives as a way to even out the cash flows from you know, paying this in dollars and buying this in yuan or something along those lines or hay ice from Brazil, whatever it may be. So generally, it's a very the ones that I've dealt with personally have always been such a minor thing that it's honestly just one of those things that go, oh, okay, yeah, and, and move on. And it's, it's like one of those companies that they may have a, a billion or a million dollars in investments and it makes them almost nothing. It's okay, great. I see that they have it, but it's just not something you're going to 
focus a lot of attention on. But it looks like with this company in particular that it is very much a big <laughs> impact on the business and has obviously helped contribute to some serious negative numbers. As I did a, a real quick, talking like 30 second quick look at this company before we jumped on here. And it looks like it's a, a cannabis company out of Canada. And I know that the cannabis stocks are a far different breed than they are here in the United States because it's legal in the country from what I understand. And so I think there's probably more opportunity to investigate other cannabis or marijuana companies in Canada that might have better opportunities than this one. Um, not trying to tell you no, like Andrew was saying, there's so many red flags about this. You even mentioned that in the email that meets zero of our prerequisites. No dividend, no cash flow positive, market cap, et cetera. It's just all is like new. Um, but it's interesting to look at these things and it could be a great learning tool. EM is trying to use it to learn more about derivatives because that could impact something else he learns in the future. And so the more you learn about different things, even if you pass on the company, it's still going to help you in the future. So I, I applaud him for doing that. Yeah, 100%. Technically, I guess anybody can do anything within a business. Like Berkshire was a textile company, and then the, the CEO had this crazy idea that he wanted to buy stocks and businesses. Obviously, it turned out really well for him. I don't know this company that we were talking about personally, and they could be great at what they do, but it's good to be aware. And kudos to Liam for doing the research and, and digging in and, and finding this because how many people just look at the surface level numbers. I, I could imagine people looking at revenues and, and completely glossing over the fact that, yeah, this is a huge part of their business and you need to be aware of it because if you go along the stock and then it turns out two years later, the publicity around their derivatives exposure becomes more apparent or, or people start to care about it all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. If you didn't know about it, then you'll probably freak out and sell. But if you were already aware of it and you knew that this was part of the long-term plan, then you're able to stick it through and probably even add more to the position if Wall Street freaks. So all positives to doing that research and, and no negatives from what I see. Yeah, I would agree with that. And one other thing that I guess I would like to throw out there as a possible consideration is when we think about different businesses that we're wanting to invest in, we're not just buying the company and we're not just buying the product or the service that they produce or sell. We're also buying the management that runs the company as well. And so one of the things that we have to attempt to do is to determine whether those people are going to be good stewards of our capital and the other people that invest in the company as well. And so when you see situations like that, it would naturally cause you to ask questions and wonder, is this person or the people running the company the right people to be running that company? And maybe they're just not the best managers of the capital. They may be great salespeople. They may be great technicians and come up with a fantastic product, but they may not be great at, at managing the money part of the business. And, and those are all things to consider. And it's all part of the process of, of thinking about buying a company is assessing the management as well. It's a soft skill. It's not something that gets discussed a whole lot, but it's, it certainly is important because the better capital allocators, the Warren Buffetts of the world, people like that's part of what makes him so special is that he's able to to take the money that people give him as an investment and turn that into more returns for not only the business, but also for the people that are investing in him. And so that's why it's like finding a great coach in a sport or finding a great 
great producer of, of record albums back in my day, back in the old days. There were two or three producers that were famous for producing all these albums and all these top albums. And all the artists wanted them to produce their music because they knew it was going to give them a good outcome. And the same idea when you're thinking about buying stocks is looking for good CEOs or CFOs or a management team overall and assessing whether that's going to be a good fit for you as well as for the company. And so those are all questions you can add to your list of questions you want to ask when you're thinking about investing in different companies. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money. Not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. That's super key. And if that idea didn't cement in your brain, I'd recommend going back and re-listening to that because that's that's a lot of wisdom packed into what it takes to finding good investments. Another reason why I like Companies that pay a lot of dividends and buy back a lot of shares because they're showing that they're willing to give the money back to where it belongs. Yep. So moving on to the next question. Hey, Andrew, I was wondering about your opinion on the tobacco industry. I know you don't give specific advice. Wondering more about the industry as a whole. A lot of tobacco stocks have high dividend yields that have been growing for a while and some pretty stable capital appreciation over time. However, they're obviously not very sustainable companies 
And with the high potential for a big move towards ESG investing, they may become even more unpopular. Additionally, I haven't looked into this as much as I should have probably, but I know there was at least an attempt to ban menthol cigarettes, maybe only in New York. Other than a very high dividend payout ratio, which you mentioned you would prefer less to a lower payout ratio, leaving more room for growth. Many have relatively strong financials. Some are even dividend keens. What do you think about companies that, what do you think about companies like that? Decent financials, high dividends, historical dividend growth, but uncertain futures. Dave, let's throw that off to you first. I'm curious. I guess for me personally, tobacco companies are companies that I stay away from. And for me, it's more of a a personal choice. I don't like smoking. I don't believe in smoking. I personally have never smoked. I've literally never smoked a cigarette in my entire life. I worked in the restaurant business for a very long time, over 20 years, and I saw a lot of people smoking. And I just, I don't know anything good that comes from it. I know that they all swore by it, that it helped to calm their nerves. The restaurant business is a very stressful business and there's a lot of stress and a lot of, just a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress that go into it just because of the nature of the the business. And it doesn't excuse people smoking, but I guess underneath it all, it always frustrated me that smokers would get a break, but us non-smokers never would. So (laughs) I I guess maybe I always resented that, but the health benefits, there are none for smoking. And I don't know anybody that could argue reasonably that there is any. The flip side of that is the tobacco industry has been smart about a few things. Number one, I think they saw the tea leaves or the tobacco leaves changing many years ago, and they jumped on the bandwagon for creating the patches and the gums and Nicorette gums and all those things to help people stop smoking. So they would get people to smoke and then they would create the products to help them stop smoking. And then they jumped on the vaping bandwagon as well. So they're trying to play both sides of it, which is smart, but I, I agree with what the, the, the questioner was was commenting about ESG, even whether it's ESG or not. I really think that the health effects of smoking are, are going to lessen in t- over time, hopefully. I know that my generation were big smokers, and I think as they got older, they moved away from it. Andrew's generation, at least from what I saw in the restaurant business, they were big-time smokers too. So uh, I'm hoping that maybe they would move away from that. But as far as the idea of what they do and how they do it and all the things that they mentioned at the end, decent financials, high dividends, historical dividend growth, those are things that are, those are all awesome. But I think one of the things that would turn me off if I was just taking the ethical part of it for me personally, again, this is just my opinion. So if somebody else disagrees with me, obviously more power to you. But the uncertain futures of what's going to happen with tobacco and the the tobacco industry going down the road will go away overnight. No, but will lessen in prominence probably. And I think that would be something that would give me pause about thinking about having this as something as a long-term investment. And I, I think there's so many other opportunities out there that offer a lot of the same ideas that you're talking about, decent financials, high dividends, historical dividend growth, and maybe not the most outstanding financial futures. But certainly if you look at utilities, just as a brief example, utilities offer all those same kinds of ideas, decent financials, strong moats, strong businesses. They may not have huge growth rates, but they all pay dividends. They all pay strong dividends. They all pay growing dividends. And in in some cases, they are, in essence, a monopoly 
in their region. And it's unlikely because of the high costs to unseat them. And I'm thinking of a company like Con Ed, for example, which is, which does service here in Illinois, but also in the, in the Northeast, I believe. And to unseat somebody like that is going to cost billions, if not trillions of dollars to develop an infrastructure and all the things that go into unseating a utility like that. So there's some stability in that, but it, and they pay great dividends, but you may not see five, 10% growth in the stock price over a long period of time, just because of the nature of the beast. But I guess my point is that you can find some of these other characteristics outside of the tobacco industry if you look a little bit. And there's other industrials that will offer this similar idea. And I guess along the same idea, the oil industry is probably maybe on the same kind of uh, tenuous future, possibly, that tobacco is. Who knows what's going to happen over the next 5, 10, 20 years? Nobody does. But the signs are on the wall that maybe the oil industry could be it could be in for, for a struggle bus here over the next five, 10 years as green becomes more of a thing. But again, I think to go back to the question, the, for me, the tobacco industry is something that I would stay away from personally. I'm curious to hear what Andrew has to say about this. Since I used to be a smoker and I smoked for a while, I guess I could be the natural person to take the other side of the argument. There's, it, it's like a, it's it's like paying your bills. Like you just, you got to buy your cigarettes and there's nothing like it. And it's great for building relationships and just hanging out and all of that. I think that all said, I have noted between people who I used to smoke with or just looking around and, and seeing people out in public, there is a big move towards the vaping. And then you also have to wonder how much is cannabis going to eat into what used to be tobacco. And so 100% agree, like when the financials look good, the dividend yield is very high. I think there's a lot of opportunities, like Dave said, in industries that are maybe unfairly beaten up where the sentiment says this industry is not going to last. And so there's going to be a lot of opportunity in industries like that. But I think when it comes to tobacco, it's there's a lot, even if, if we want to compare like tobacco to oil, how many... And I guess it all depends on what circles you run into. A lot of this can be anecdotal or personal opinion. And maybe that does play a lot into the valuation. How many, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to bring oil into it. Forget, forget I even said anything about oil, but the, the fact of the matter remains is there's a lot of pressure against tobacco. And I think it's obvious over the last 20, 30 years, that health has become a greater priority for society and within culture. And I think you're seeing that a lot more, especially in the past 10, 15 years, than you have seen in the past. And even something as simple as calories used to never be on in drive-through windows. Now you see them like all the time. So information, informed people trying to be more healthy, trying to live longer. These are all things that don't really fit in with what tobacco is so you're always going to have people who who love it but you wonder to dave's point with the newer generations coming in they take on to a similar demand that somebody like dave's generation saw and if not what's that going to do to the demand for this kind of a product so that makes it really tough you combine that with the fact that a high dividend payout ratio so what that means just 101 super quick a company makes this much in profit and then they'll pay 
this much in a dividend. And so the more of their profits that go towards a dividend, the higher the payout ratio is. And so if their payout ratio has been increasing over time, what that means is they're eventually going to run out of profits. That's not a trend that can sustain itself. And so if you want to continue growing a high growing dividend, you have to have growth in the business. And so the question becomes, where is the growth going to come from and how confident can you be that growth is going to be there? I think when you have things that are societal changes, it's hard to it's hard to pro- project that demand. I mean, even look at like Warren Buffett when he bought Coca-Cola. He bought Coca-Cola in 1987. There was not much going against people drinking sodas. Would he buy Coca-Cola again today? I don't know what the answer to that question is, but you do wonder with all of the again focus on health and the idea that products like Coca-Cola are really bad for people and just different consumer behaviors of people switching. I know a lot of offices have like the LaCroix stuff. It's, it's like soda, but there's no calories and no bad ingredients in it. So these are the type of things where no, no business lives forever and, and every business kind of goes through its life cycle and they have these periods where they have high demand, but if they're not able to move with the evolving tastes of consumers, then they're going to get left behind. And so when I look at the tobacco industry, I just, I don't, even if the prices are cheap, if, if I feel like I'm holding on to a ticking time bomb, that doesn't fit in with what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do is buy investments for the long term that can compound over decades and where the time is on your side and not against you. Because trying to play that game of hot potato and trying to be the one who's not holding that hot potato, it's a tough game, especially on Wall Street when everybody else is trying to play it too. Yeah, I I would agree with that. And the thing that I go back to when I think about tobacco industry, and you were talking about the other side of, of my negativity about it. I cannot remember, and maybe you could correct me, I cannot remember a single person that I've ever talked to that A, didn't regret smoking and B, didn't want to quit. Every single one of them that I talked to wanted to quit. They all knew it was bad for them, but they still did it. Now, I can't get on my high horse too much because here I am drinking soda, you know, every day and it's my addiction. And so I I understand that there's an addiction part of it with cigarettes for sure. And, but I just, I just wonder about the long term viability of investing in companies like that. And you brought up a great point with Coca-Cola. When Buffett did buy it in 87, there was not the stigma that there is now of soda. And so you just wonder what's going to, not what's going to come next, but what's going to come next? And where is the next thing that's that could be potentially not good for us that we all know uh, is not good for us? I know that soda is not good for me. But I still, it's a combination of the bubbles and the sugar and being a diabetic, this is my only access to some sort of sweetness and it doesn't seem to to freak my body out so much so I can, I can handle it. But those are all things you have to consider when you are thinking about investing in anything is you just have to, you have to look at what the long-term effects could be of the particular product or service that they're offering and decide if that is something that A, you want to be involved with and whether you think it could be or could not be something that is beneficial down the road. Yeah, that's a great point. I think it it speaks to the personalized nature of investing a whole group of people looking at the same set of facts and coming up to with wildly different conclusions. Just to go back to the financials, 
having payout ratios that are increasing, particularly if revenues are decreasing. That's a very different situation than an industry that is cheap and things are growing, revenues growing, profits are growing, dividends growing. Those are two very different scenarios. And so investors need to be careful when they're looking for value like that. Yep, I would agree with that. That's a very good assessment. So we have, hi, I have a question I was hoping you could address in one of your upcoming podcasts. I unfortunately lost a parent last year and inherited a substantial amount of money. I already have a good deal saved for retirement 20 years off and don't need the money for my day-to-day living. So the question is how to invest it while minimizing the risk of investing in a market after a historic rebound coming out of the 2020 pandemic crash. For example, if dollar cost averaging is one possible strategy, what sort of time frame should one consider? Thanks. Andrew, what are your thoughts on this really interesting question? Yeah, first, uh, I'm sorry for your loss. That's awful to hear. Having 20 years until retirement and receiving a substantial amount of money, I like the idea of dollar cost averaging that. I know there's studies that say time in the market versus timing the market. If you're just going to throw it in an index fund, then that's maybe the better option. But uh, there's a lot of psychological benefits to, I think, cushioning any potential crash that could come. Because when you're in the market, a crash could happen at any time. And so we have to be cognizant of that. And so if this is like a crazy amount of money to you, and imagine putting it in, and if the market were to crash 20% tomorrow, and you would see that negative dollar amount in your portfolio, would it freak you out? And if the answer is yes, then... Don't put it all in at once. For me, like I've mentioned this several times, but when I did a rollover from 401k, I think I had 20 or $25,000 at the time. It was a lot of money. And so what I did is I just split it up into 10 months and every month I put in $2,000. And then by the end of those 10 months, I had fully diversified that, that lump sum. And so what that does for you is, is several things. Number one, you can find 10 different great companies instead of just having to find one. And when you put it into 10 different companies, you can afford to be wrong Uh, or you can afford for a company to stumble or for it to have some big change happen that's out of its control. So those are the benefits of dollar cost averaging that. If the timeline to retirement was closer, maybe if it was me personally, I'd look more into putting some of that into bonds, but something that's still 20 years off, I, I feel like if it was me, I'm very comfortable with the stock market. I know the history of the stock market, and that's something I've studied for a very long time, and I'm very familiar with it. So that's why I'd be comfortable putting it all in the market. But at the same time, I like spacing it out over time because you get diversification of time frame, and then you also get diversification of companies and opportunities if you're doing individual stocks. That's great. All right, folks. Well, with that, we are going to wrap up our conversation for today. I want to thank everybody for taking the time to write us those great questions. Keep them coming. You guys are asking some really good stuff, and we hope you guys are getting some good value out of our answers. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. We'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. 
The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and/or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at eInvestingForBeginners.com.